The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. When I threw it into the fire, out came this cat. Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, making them a laughingstock to their enemies. The word of the Lord. Poor uh, Aaron, eh? I threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. That's a believable story. How many of us have heard excuses for something that just sounded far too ridiculous to be true? I bet some of us have made some excuses for sin or some mistake. And what we came up with as our excuse was just way too ridiculous to be believable. Is that true? Is that fair to say? Yeah, sin makes us do crazy things. One story that comes to mind is one of the biggest stories of the 1990s. The story of the Bobbitt family. Are you familiar with these guys? So let me, let me give you sort of the PG version. So John and Lorena Bobbitt had been married for four years. And um, John had cheated on her so often. And he had been so abusive toward her that she eventually had enough. And one night while John was asleep, she got up in the middle of the night. The night. She went to the kitchen and got a carving knife. She came back to bed and she cut off little John. And then uh, she took it and she got in the car and she drove away and threw it out the car window. So she uh, actually was found not guilty when her case went to trial. He had surgery to put himself back together, so to speak. Um, And not surprisingly, they divorced pretty soon after. But I'd be curious to see what, what you think about that story. I'd be curious to see whether you think the, the, the sin was worse or the penalty. Do you not, you don't, you don't know. How many of you think both are just pretty awful? Yeah, okay, pretty safe answer, good. It seems to me a story like this reminds us that when we're betrayed by somebody that we love, that can't easily be fixed. You know, like something really big has to happen in order to bring, bring people back together after a serious betrayal. Now, we're in this series called OT Talks. Uh, these are old ideas worth spreading. And what we're doing as we go along and, and we reflect on these Old Testament stories is we're being reminded how important it is to read these through the lens of Jesus. Um, now, uh, last week, Sam Thrall led us uh, through a study of uh, Samson, and we're back together this week uh, looking at the story of the gold calf incident. Lots of Jewish scholars consider this uh, the most disgraceful moment in, in Jewish history. Like, I want you to think about it for a minute. Like, we are within weeks of Israel escaping Egypt and, and crossing the Red Sea, and it's like, how, how did this happen? How did this happen? And, and could it happen to us? And my aim this morning is to help sort of guard our relationships, especially our relationship with God, by learning from Israel's mistake. So what I want to do this morning is look at this story of the golden calf incident under three headings. The first is adultery. The second is idolatry. And the third is the penalty. So adultery, idolatry, and then the penalty. So first I want to reflect on this as a story of adultery. Adultery. So you're like, really, is this actually adultery? And it it actually is. Um, This is how the ancient rabbis understood this story, where the Israelites were the bride, God is the groom, Sinai is the bridal chamber, and the Ten Commandments are like the, the vows. 
in the in the wedding. And so the rab the, the ra- ancient rabbis would tell their disciples and have them memorize this phrase based on the story. They'd say, "How shameful is a bride who has been unfaithful under her wedding canopy." And so and and, and for me, right from the beginning of this story, I actually see all of the necessary sort of ingredients for an affair. First, I see uh, distance. I see Israel uh, separated from Moses for a, for a time, and they're like, well, we're way down here. His work takes him way up there. That is not what we thought we were getting ourselves into. And so there's distance. They also have a grievance. It's like, you know, they have valid longings and, and needs that need to be met. And, and Moses has been separated from them for a while, and it's, it's like they feel that they've been abandoned. So they've got this grievance. And then impatience. It's, it's not, the, the issue is not only that Moses is far away it, it, geographically, it's that he's also delayed. He's taking too much time. And it's like, how long does he expect us to wait for him? Like, how long are we supposed to wait before we go and find our, a way to have our needs met somewhere else? And then I see in the story a convenient solution. I see the people who come up with this idea to replace him. And Aaron has the suggestion of of this golden calf, this shiny, new, cool gold calf. And it's like, we're going to be able to worship again. We're going to feel alive again. Don't we deserve that? Don't we deserve to feel good uh, again? That's how it happens, right? There's a a secular marriage author. His name is Willard Harley. Uh, He writes a lot about marriage. He says, that we are all wired for affairs. We think we are being cheated by our spouses out of what's rightfully ours, a fulfilling life. Uh, We think if our spouses can't do the job, then we have the right to find someone else who can. And we should grab the opportunity while it exists. Now, we're going to hear more from Professor Harley uh, in a little bit. But uh, it seems to me that Israel's uh, adultery happened in this story much the same way that Anybody else's does. You know, when our needs go unmet for long enough, we justify looking at some shiny new thing that, that will. That's not strange. That's not unusual. That's, that's uh, how it happens. Like as, comfort- as uncomfortable as it is for us to discuss that, this is how it happens. In fact, I bet uh, most, for most of us, we either have been or we know someone very close to us who has been unfaithful in one way or another. And it can be difficult and uncomfortable to talk about these things, but it's super important. And, and, and in, no, in most of these cases, it wasn't planned. It just happened. It just sort of happened. Israel didn't set out to cheat on Yahweh. This is, again, we're within weeks of crossing the Red Sea. It didn't, they didn't plan it, but it happened. And the wedding is barely even over, and Israel has already committed adultery on their groom. So this is a case of adultery. Let's also consider this story under the heading of idolatry. Under the heading of idolatry, it, I think this story actually gives us a bunch of reasons why God hates uh, fake hypocritical worship. Reasons why God hates hypocritical worship. One of them is just, it's simply false. Like it actually creates a false God. Now, one of the big questions you might have as you, ref- as you look at this story is like, why a calf? Why in the world would Israel come up with a calf? What is, what is going on here? Um, I think it's important to acknowledge from the beginning, 
what Israel had in mind is they were not setting out to create a new pagan deity and worship that other deity. What they're doing is they are, they've uh, established in this gold calf a new and a different way to worship the God uh, of Israel. They're worshiping their God. Now, how do we know that? Well, ancient um, artists used to portray their gods uh, riding on top of the bull god Taurus. And that was a way of showing like, well, if, man, like if, if, if he can handle Taurus, uh, he must be some kind of god. He must be like super powerful. Um, and so lots of, lots of ancient uh, deities would be re- represented riding on top of a bull in order to show their strength. Now, in addition, we know that gold statues were already a part of Israel's worship because back in Exodus 25, God had told Israel to build the Ark of the Covenant out of, out of gold with these gold cherubs, these gold angels on top. And where those two angels would meet in the middle, the space above that was called the mercy seat. And God would, was believed to come and rest in that place and he would speak to Israel. And so lots of Hebrew scholars and archaeologists believe that the golden calf would function the same way, like God would meet them above the gold calf. And so what Israel was saying in making a gold calf is, hey, our God is the best of all the gods. He, uh, he's, the, he's the ultimate God. He's the coolest among the many gods. If you want to find him, you know where to look for him? You can find him riding on the bull. You can find him above the calf. That's where our God meets us. So if you want to find our God, that's where you'll, you'll, you'll meet him. Now, God had already told them in the very first commandment back in chapter 20, he is not okay with, being, with, having, with any other God being worshipped besides him. That's the very, very first commandment. And it's like, so in this episode of Israel's history, it's like, I don't know who you think you're worshipping. But Yahweh isn't just like the coolest among many gods. He is the one true God. And what you've done here is you've actually replaced him. And this is a false God and this is false worship and, and God hates it. He, it's also forbidden. Like explicitly in the second commandment, God had said uh, that they are not to form any image and bow down to it. Uh, it's also forced because Aaron, if you remember in the story, Um, he goes and he demands that the Israelites give up their gold. They're they're not offering it up voluntarily. He requires it of them. And and that's not how worship is supposed to work. But it's also offensive. It's also offensive because if you think about it, like there's no prayer or planning involved. You know, Aaron isn't an artist. He's not a sculptor or a builder. And, and there, were, there, there were artists and sculptors who were part of the, the Israelites at the time. Um, but this is just like a, a lazy rush job. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's actually offensive to God. And then finally, I think it's also, there's some really filthy things going on in this story that we need to acknowledge too. And God hates it. He hates it. This, this festival of the Lord in verse 5 had nothing to do with God. Their, their worship wasn't, there's no holiness. There's no reverence here. And once the offering uh, is done, uh, in verse 6, we read that the people pig out and they like get up to party. And so you're like, what does that mean that they got up to party? So other versions say that they uh, indulge in revelry. Some say that they rose up to play. One version says they indulge in pagan revelry. 
what you're meant to imagine here is you're, is that like whatever you can imagine happening at the dirtiest, seediest dance club in downtown Hamilton on a Friday night. That's what it, that's what the text means here by that they, they got up to party. Okay. And so that's what's going on in Israel's worship and God hates it. And it's like, how could this happen? Again, so soon after they've passed through the Red Sea, how could they fail so badly with God? And, uh, and I really like the answer that Jen Wilkin uh, offers. She says, this is the form that our idolatry often takes. It's, it's our tendency not to go and worship the thing that is not God, but rather to take something that's not God and combine it with our worship of the one true God and tell ourselves that we can make that work. Again, they're not creating another God. They're taking something out in the culture, combining it with the worship of the one true God and telling ourselves we can make that work. I think that that is so true and so helpful. Guys, this really matters because it shows Israel's main problem isn't adultery, as bad as adultery is. Their main problem was idolatry. Like before they ever thought about cheating on God, they had already decided that they know better than he does what's good for them. They'd already decided that their needs and their longings matter more than his command. Because that's how idolatry works. Once we've dethroned God in our hearts, once we have replaced God in our hearts, then we can rationalize anything else. Isn't that true? And so the sin beneath the sin in this story, the sin beneath every other sin, is idolatry. It's idolatry. And so next I want us to consider God's response. I want us to consider God's response. Earlier I mentioned this author, Willard Harley. He, uh, he, he has a book called His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. And part of his book is uh, it's advice about what to do after an affair happens between, uh, like in a relationship. This book is a super bestseller. He's a secular author. Uh, here's, his, uh, here's his advice for what to do after the affair. He, he, what he wants you to do is don't do anything that makes you appear less attractive to the person who cheated on you. Here's what he actually says. Angry outbursts, disrespectful judgments, and selfish demands, these three love busters not only ruin any effort to reach a negotiated settlement, but they also make the betrayed spouse much less attractive to the wayward spouse. The anger, the disrespect, and the demands of the betrayed spouse make the lover appear to be the only one who truly cares about the wayward spouse. They literally throw the wayward spouse into the arms of the lover. I don't know what you think about that. But that's what he says you shouldn't do. Okay, so here's what he says you should do. If you have been cheated on, uh, you should write a letter to your spouse. And your, your letter should say the following. This is, a, this is an, expert, an excerpt. He says, my dearest uh, so-and-so, I apologize to you for my part in creating an environment that helped make your affair possible. I foolishly pursued my goals without understanding my responsibility to meet your most important emotional needs. I was not there for you when you needed me most, and we are now both suffering for my mistake. I am willing to avoid the mistakes I've made in the past and create a new life for both of us that will meet your needs. Uh, I want us to be able to meet each other's emotional needs and to avoid doing anything to hurt each other. 
We can build a new lifestyle together in which everything we do makes us both happy. Then there will never be a reason for us to be separated. I don't know what you think of that. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not a fan. Um, I'm not a fan for a couple of reasons. Uh, One reason is because there is no good excuse for cheating. Like there is nothing that Heather could do to me that would make it okay for me to run around behind her back and, and have an affair. But second, it's because I actually don't encourage people to, who are in any kind of relationship, not just marriage, but any kind of relationship. I don't encourage people to seek to have their most important emotional needs met by other people. Like that's not fair. That's more than we can expect uh, of other people. It's not their job. We're actually expecting those people to do for us something that only God can do. And if we take this solution and we apply it to the story of the gold calf, what you have is that God should actually apologize to Israel. God should apologize to Israel. Like they never would have made a gold calf if God hadn't been holding on to or hogging Moses for so long. So, so like maybe if God goes and God accepts the blame, then maybe that will bring Israel back. So just so you know, that's not how the story unfolds. Uh, and God responds actually a little bit differently. Uh, in verse 9, God judges them as stiff-necked, which is like, you, you know, if, if you've got an ox who won't let his master turn his head to the left or to the right, uh, that you, you're stiff-necked. And, and so, so uh, God judges Israel as stiff-necked. He wants to wipe them out and start over. It, and it looks like he would have, except Moses prayed. He went before God and he prayed and persuaded God not to wipe out all of Israel. And so it's like, hooray for Moses. He's our, he's our hero. Um, the rabbis went even further than that. They said that Moses took hold of God like a man who seizes his fellow by his garment and said to God, Master of the universe, I will not let you go until you forgive and pardon them. So again, in the telling of this story, the Jews got used to making Moses the, uh, the hero of this story, which is interesting because at this point in the story, Moses goes full Carrie Underwood and he, in verse 19, he comes down and he like smashes the, gold, the, the, the stone tablets of the law, right? To, to show that the covenant has been broken. And he takes the gold calf in verse 20 and he burns it and he grinds it into powder and he sprinkles it on the water. And he, he force feeds that water to the Israelites. And then he blames um, Aaron. And in verse 26, he takes the, the entire camp of the Israelites and he divides it into two. He divides it into the people who are for Yahweh, like the, the, basically the Levites, and then everybody else. And then he takes, uh, he, he takes those Levites and he arms them and he sends them out into the camp in order to kill everybody who worshipped the calf. So that what happens in verse 28 is that the Levites did as Moses commanded and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. Now, I think that there's a lesson in here for us about the penalty of betrayal. I think it's this. I think that the seriousness of the penalty for betrayal depends on who has been betrayed. Do you agree with that? The seriousness of the penalty depends on who has been betrayed. 
And when you realize that our sin is always against a, a holy creator, like every sin is a betrayal of a holy God who upholds the universe to whom we owe everything, then you realize, wow, I guess in this story of the gold calf, like the, the, the penalty actually fits the crime. Except the story isn't over. Because there's a couple of important pieces of the story that we haven't addressed yet. And, and maybe you haven't noticed in the, way, in the times that you've read this story in the past. Because I've got a couple of un, unanswered questions from this story. Number one, why did Moses kill the Israelites after God decided not to? Why did he decide to kill the Israelites after God decided not to? I mean, like, that's interesting, isn't it? Like, is that kind of important? Um, I'm not arguing whether or not the Israelites deserved to die. I think clearly from the text they, they did. But I can't help notice that in verse 14, God relented from his intention to, to put the Israelites to death. He decided he wasn't going to do that. He was going to have mercy and yet Moses and the Levites, they still go ahead and 3,000 Israelites are put to death anyways. Did you notice that? And I'm like, is that okay? Like, is that, is that what God wanted done that day? Um, my, other question, my other question is related to that. It's, it's this, after Israel is punished by Moses and the Israelites, like after the punishment, why is there still any need for atonement? I mean, it's kind of interesting, right? Like after there are 3,000 dead sinners, after the Levites have earned a blessing on themselves for being so dedicated to God, God and his people are still not reconciled yet. They're not brought back together. And that's why in verse 30, Moses has to go before God. And perhaps, the verse says, perhaps he will atone for Israel's sin. And then in verse 31, he hopes and he prays that God might forgive them. He prays that God might forgive them. Now, why is that necessary? Are you tracking? Why, is, why in the world is that still necessary? If Moses and the, and the Levites did what needed to be done, if that's justice, if they punished the guilty, what could possibly be left to do? You know, when I am involved in counseling a couple and, and, and serving a couple after it's been revealed that one of them has been unfaithful, I go into that situation with one goal, and my goal is to judge whether they are, that person is done with the affair or not. Like, are they repentant or are they grieved because they got caught? Or are they repentant and, and are they grieved because they realize the seriousness of what they've done? And I've, one of the things that I've learned is that it's really hard to put these things back together, but it is possible. But people always say ridiculous things. I mean, in, in one situation, I was with uh, a couple whose marriage was uh, being ruined because of his use of pornography. And she was broken over it. She was brokenhearted because she couldn't, she knew, she, she was like, I can't compete with the woman, women that he is lusting over in, in porn. And so I asked him if he believes he's a Christian. And he was like offended by that. Like, of course I am. How, how dare you ask me a question like that? So I said to him, don't you realize that if you don't fight this thing, you have no compelling reason to believe that you believe in Jesus? Well, zero effect. That had no effect uh, on the situation. You know what got his attention? I suggested that she leave him. And if after a month or two months, she's not satisfied that he is finished with pornography, 
I would help her to initiate a divorce. I would. I would help her to initiate a divorce. And, and when he heard that, he was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's just pornography. Like, it's just porn. Everybody does it. It's like, I threw the gold into the fire and out came this calf. Another time I was with a, a couple who weren't married, but they were sleeping together. They were living together, sleeping together. She was full of regret and, and he wasn't. She knew deep down this was, this was not healthy and, and it would eventually like disqualify her from leadership in the ministry that she was serving in because her, she was blowing her, her witness with these people. He took a different uh, approach. He was like, you know, Mike, God is love. And when we show each other uh, how we feel, when we show each other our love, I think that God's happy for us. I, I think he, it pleases God when we show each other how much we love. I mean, how could something that feels so good be wrong? That's literally what he said. It's like, I threw the gold into the fire and out jumped this calf. Another time I met with a guy right after his wife learned that uh, he had cheated on her. Uh, I felt like he was making light of what happened. This guy was a ministry leader and he was kind of embarrassed because he was a full-time ministry guy and um, he was embarrassed that he had become another statistic and he had made lots of jokes about it and and I wasn't impressed and and I told him so. He actually threatened to punch me in the face. He threatened to punch me in the face and then he asked me how long I thought it would be before he could return to work in the ministry that he'd been serving in. Out came this calf. And I could go on and on. And in every one of these cases, there is hurt and there is fear and there's betrayal and heartbreak and there are stupid excuses and, and, and lame reasons. And, and there is anger. And, and because anger, I think, makes perfect sense in a situation like this. But eventually, you need to figure out what are you going to do with all of that stuff? What are you going to do with that hurt? And, and i got to be honest with you. I truly don't know how people forgive one another who don't believe in a sin-bearing substitute. Amen? Like, I honestly don't know how people forgive one another if they don't believe that there was a, that there was a substitute who came along and, and bore their sin. Can I just tell you some really good news for a minute? Like, I can't make sense of this story apart from Jesus. I don't, like, can you? I mean, Moses could smash the tablets, he could burn up the calf and grind it into powder, and he could wipe out all of the sinners, and that still didn't reconcile the bride and the groom. And and so I think that the message of this story is actually kind of simple. It's so simple that I think even Moses may have missed it. It's this. It's that you can't punish your way back into a right relationship. Let me say that again. You can't punish your way back into right relationship. Not with with God. Not with each other. Not through lame excuses. Not by blaming yourself. And also not by taking a carving knife and taking matters into your own hands. And so the question is, what do we do with all that hurt? What do we do with it when we're betrayed? What do we do with that, with that hurt and the pain and the anger and the fear and the, the, the resentment, the betrayal? What do we do with all of that? How can there possibly be reconciliation? Because it's like the other person has no idea how much they've hurt us. And we can't carry that ourselves. What are we going to do with that? Well, you know, the gospel says Jesus gets it. And he is the substitute that we need. Because Jesus, just like Moses, he went before God 
And on behalf of the people, he prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he did that, he wasn't asking the Father to do something that the Father wasn't already inclined to do. Jesus didn't go to the cross in order to change God's mind about you. Do you know that? Jesus didn't go to the cross to change how God feels about you. Jesus went to the cross and proved how God feels about you. I hope that you believe that. Jesus shows that he shows that he understands the cost. He understands the weight and the consequence of our betrayal. He understands it like nobody else can because he bore the full weight of it. When he went to the cross, he carried it and he went all the way down to the grave, down into death. And when he died, when he died, friends, that sin died too. The consequences died and he went, took it all the way down to death and he blew it up from the inside and he rose again. And so there is no longer any need for us to bear that burden because it is dealt with because Jesus is alive. And so it seems to me that in this story, God had a choice. He had the same, same choice that we have when we're betrayed. God had a choice. Will he choose atonement or punishment? And God chose atonement through Jesus. See, we can, we can have reconciliation or we can have justice, but we won't have both. I really believe that. We can have reconciliation or we can have justice, but we won't have both, not on this side of heaven. And so we can't punish our way back into a right relationship. And God forbid that you ever betray somebody that you love the way that we've been talking about. And God forbid that you are ever betrayed by somebody that you love in the way that we're talking about today. But if you are, if that happens, you're gonna need some place to put all that hurt and shame, and fear, and anger. You're going to need some place to put that. And you have three choices. Either you can take that on yourself, and blame yourself. You can put it on the person who hurt you and try to take revenge. See how that goes. Or you can give it to the one who by his death has reconciled us both to God and to each other. And friends, that is an idea worth spreading. Thank you for listening.